0: Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Happy holidays, my loves. I want to take a minute just to say I love your face. (laughs) I hope this year was a good one for you. And thank you so much for choosing me to have in your ears on a weekly basis. Just a reminder that I would love to have you join me in the fan club, where I cover more of the cases that you want to hear. I'm currently offering an end-of-year special. If you sign up for a year of the fan club, you get two months free. That's a huge discount, and it's a great way to support one of your favorite creators. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash military murder to join today. All right, let's kick this story off. I recently became aware of a serial killer who began his killing while on active duty. And then after he separated, he went back to his hometown and continued what he started. This man left many dead women in his wake, but one woman got away. During my research into this serial killer, I came across a quote that summed up this man perfectly. But it could also sum up most of the serial killers with a military background. Of today's serial killer, Illinois State Attorney Richard Devine said he's a, quote, cunning opportunist. Clever and manipulative, he camouflaged his animal instincts and murderous acts, first under the color of his service as a United States Marine, and later in civilian life as a security guard. His craftily engineered aura of respectability enabled him to kill without suspicion across half of a continent for two decades," end quote. Join me today as I tell you the story of serial killer Andrew Erdialis. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode include an episode of Inside Evil, Confessions of a Serial Killer, and an episode of a es I Survived. But the most heavily sourced documents that I used to inform this story were a 2007 Illinois Supreme Court opinion and an Illinois state opposition brief opposing clemency. I know you hear a trigger warning at the start of every episode that I put out there, but major trigger warning for this case for situations involving rape, sodomy, torture, and of course, murder. I think it's safe to say that Chicago, Illinois, is well known for having a high crime rate. Whether this is actually true or not, we don't need to get into that. But in 1996, there were three murders that took place close in time and proximity to each other. And the police departments handling those cases, they were beginning to fear they had a potential serial killer on their hands. And it all started on April 14, 1996, when police discovered the body of 25-year-old Laura Lori Ulaki. She had been shot and dumped in Wolf Lake on the Illinois-Indiana border. Her naked body left behind no clues as to who killed her, but it was evident she had been shot. Three months later, another woman was found in an eerily similar situation as Laura. On July 14, 1996, police discovered the body of a naked woman floating in the Vermilion River in Livingston County. The woman's wrist had been handcuffed, her ankles had been duct taped together, and she had duct tape on her mouth. There was no identifying the woman, and an autopsy revealed that she had died from one gunshot to the head and seven stab wounds to the head and chest. Eventually, police were able to identify the woman when they connected her to the missing woman from Hammond, Indiana. The woman was 21-year-old Cassandra Coram. Initially, police were not tracking any connections with Cassandra's murder to any other murder, And the Vermilion River was about 100 miles from Wolf Lake, so it makes sense for there not to be a connection. But then, a little over two weeks later, 22-year-old Lynn Huber was discovered in Wolf Lake, also shot and stabbed. And what's more shocking is that not only were these women found shot and dead in a body of water, they had something else in common. They were sex workers. Police start interviewing local sex workers, and many of them fear for their lives. Detectives are diligently working these cases, and it is easy to tie Lynn and Laura's murders to each other, because not only were they found in the same place, ballistics eventually show that they were killed using the same gun. But the investigation isn't really giving them any leads because there are no eyewitnesses. But then they get a break. On April 1st, 1997, eight months after the last murder, Hammond, Indiana police respond to a call made by a man named Andrew Erdialis. The officer responded to the American Inn Hotel located at 4000 Kalama Avenue, where the police officer found Erdialis arguing with a sex worker that I'm going to call PK. According to the L.A. Times, Erdialis was accusing PK of taking some personal papers. The cop was like, "Okay, what's going on? And PK was like, let me tell you. Hike was concerned because she had been approached by Erdialis, who was a John. You know, he was he was trying to pay for sex. He wanted to take her to Wolf Lake. And not only that, he wanted to handcuff her and duct tape her. And she was like, oh, hell no. Well, this cop, his name was Officer Warren Fryer. He was actually familiar with Andrew Erdialis because months earlier in November of 1996, he had stopped Erdialis during a routine stop and asked Erdialis if he had a gun. Erdialis said yes and handed the gun over. Turned out that Erdialis didn't have a proper permit for the gun. So Fryer let Erdialis go but cited him for not having a gun permit. And Officer Fryer kept the gun and put it into evidence. Fryer also recalled seeing duct tape in the car as well, but not really thinking anything of it. Well, all these months later, Officer Fryer remembered still having the gun in their possession And while he had not thought about the random traffic stops since it happened, now that he had a sex worker tying Erdialis to Wolf Lake and wanting to do some kinky stuff with a sex worker at the same location where two sex workers were recently murdered, well, a light bulb went on. Officer Fryer wrote up a report about what had just happened down at the American Inn Hotel, and he then called down to the station handling the Wolf Lake murders and told them what he had learned. The detectives handling those two murders got their hands on Alice's gun that was in custody. And when they tested it, boom, it was a match for the two Wolf Lake victims. Andrew Erdialis was a Chicago resident, and he was working as a security guard at the time. Well, on April 22, 1997, Alice was leaving his Chicago place that he shared with his parents when Chicago police picked Erdialis up to have a chat. He didn't seem extremely shocked. And he voluntarily went with the police down at the police station. They ask him about his gun and he voluntarily told them that he bought that gun five years earlier in Kalamut City. He's like, yep, I've never taken my eyes off that gun, except when it was confiscated by the police. And he assures them he's the only one who's ever handled it. The police then lay the picture of the three girls in front of him, Laura, Lynn and Cassandra. They ask him if he recognizes one of them, two of them, any of them. And Andrew Erdialis says, no, I don't know who they are. But I imagine at this point, the detective gets a little smirk on his face and he says, oh, really? Well, that's interesting because these three women were murdered and we have proof they were killed with your gun. Oh, Erdialis stopped. And then he nonchalantly took his security badge off and then he began to take his shoelaces off as he said, quote, well, I guess I'm not going to work today, end quote. And then he spilled the beans. But listen, after he told police how things went down with the three ladies in Illinois without skipping a beat, Erdie Alice looked over at the detective and was like, yeah, there are some matters that your California counterparts might be interested in. Excuse me, say what now? Who is Andrew Erdialis? Andrew Erdialis was born in June of 1964. He was the youngest of six kids and he was of Mexican descent and grew up mostly in the Chicago area. When Erdialis was just three or four years old, his older brother Alfred died while fighting in Vietnam. Erdialis did not quite understand death at such a young age, and even after Alfred passed, Erdialis would wait on the porch for his brother to come home. But he never did. Alfred's death caused extreme pain for Alice's mom, and for a period of two or three years, the mother of six could not function, causing Alice's older sisters to step in to help raise Andrew Alice during this time because he was so young. After his arrest, Erdialis confided in his psychologist, And his mitigation expert that when he was 11 years old, one of his older sisters began to sexually abuse him. He said the sexual abuse occurred a few times and it caused him to feel fearful and helpless. And by sexual abuse, according to a later trial, an expert said that Erdialis admitted the sexual abuse consisted of sexual intercourse. Throughout his life, Erdialis was the victim of bullying, harassment, and beatings. At some point, the family moved from Chicago to Burnham, Illinois. And here, the Alice family was the only Mexican family. And Alice was often chased home and beat up. And it was so bad that the family eventually moved back to Chicago when Erdialis went to high school. Alice's parents believed that it was his experience living in Burnham that caused him to constantly be an anxiously social person. Erdialis never had more than one friend. And girls were not his friends. He was actually fearful of women and rarely dated. After high school, Erty Alice joined the Marines in 1984, where he served as a field radio operator, and he served for almost eight years before being honorably discharged. While in the Marines, he was stationed at Camp Pendleton and at 29 Palms, which are both in California, but he also did some time in Quantico, Okinawa, and was a Desert Storm veteran. After he left the Marines, he returned to Chicago to the Slag Valley neighborhood in the city's south side, and he sought help with the Veterans Administration. He was seen by a psychiatrist named Janet Willer, and he told her that he needed help dealing with his, quote, temper and inferiority complex, end quote. He met with Dr. Willer over 100 times from 1991 to 1995, and in addition to the temper problems, he spoke about his childhood trauma, sexual abuse, inability to talk to women and the death of his brother. The only reason he stopped visiting the VA was because the VA changed their billing and he just couldn't afford the copay. Despite everything that the Erdi Alice family experienced throughout the years, the family was pretty close knit until the explosive news of Erdi Alice's arrest for killing eight women. After his arrest, according to Kendra Moses, a defense mitigation specialist, the only family that kept in contact with Erdi Alice were his parents and one of his sisters and her son. On January 18th, 1986, while stationed at Camp Pendleton, Andrew Erdialis got into a fight with some of the other Marines. Now, it's unclear if it was a physical fight or just a verbal fight, but he was pissed. So in his mind, Erdialis decided he was going to rob someone. He decided tonight was the night. So he put an 11-inch hunting knife into his car and drove off base. And then he drove and drove until he found himself just north of Camp Pendleton at Saddleback College. He parked his car, took his knife, and then walked into a dark area of a large parking lot. That night at Saddleback College in Mission Viejo, California, there was a recital. 23-year-old Robin Branley had volunteered to be an usher, so after the concert let out, she was one of the last ones out of the building. And as she walked to her car late that night, unbeknownst to her, Erdi Alice was watching, and when he saw her in the mostly desolate parking lot, he snuck up on her as she approached her car. He put his hand over her mouth and told her to give him the purse. Robin complied. Erdie Alice then froze for a quick second. He put the purse on top of the car as he thought to himself, this was not enough. So he then took his knife and began to stab Robin repeatedly in the back. When she finally fell to the ground, Erdie Alice continued his stabbing attack, and the attack was brutal. In his own words, Erdi Alice said that at one point when he stabbed her in the ribs, his knife got stuck, but it didn't stop him. He placed his foot on top of Robin in order to give him leverage to remove the knife and continue the attack. In total, Erdi Alice stabbed Robin 41 times. Then he ran back into the woods into his car where he left her to die alone. A decade later, when Erdi Alice recounted what happened to detectives, he told the story nonchalantly and without emotion. He said he didn't know who she was. She was just a random female. Asked what he felt immediately after killing Robin, he said he felt nothing, just emptiness. After Alice ran to his car, he was covered in blood. So he had to think fast how he was going to get back on base. So he stopped on the side of the road and he opened up the hood of his car. He put engine oil all over his hands and rubbed it all over the blood stains on his clothes to try to conceal it. When he rolled up to the front gate, Erdie Alice just nervously laughed and volunteered that his car had broken down and he had to fix it. Erdie Alice laid low after Robin's murder. It's unclear why, but two years later, he'd strike again. But by this point, he was no longer stationed at Camp Pendleton. Now he was stationed at 29 Palms in California. In July of 1988, Erty Alice went on a hunt for his next victim. This time, he decided to hit up a street frequented by sex workers. He was in Cathedral City, California. He rolled down his window and chatted with Julie McGee. They agreed upon an amount, and she jumped in his car. Erty Alice drove her to a remote construction area where they had sex in his car. Afterwards, Erty Alice grabbed his gun. He pointed it at Julie, and he told her to get out. Almost as soon as she got out, he shot her in the head. He described in that moment not feeling anything. In fact, he said that immediately after killing her, it was very, quote, quiet and peaceful, end quote. So much so that he left Julie there. He jumped in his car and he went straight to a bar. He had some beer and he watched the girls dance. Julie's partially decomposed body was discovered by a jogger and she had zero identification on her person. And by that point, coyotes in the desert had already begun to feed on her remains. In deciding to kill again, Erdie Alice would not wait long this time. Two months later, in September of 1988, Erdie Alice picked up Mary Ann Wells. She was a sex worker. They agreed upon a price of $40. Mary Ann got into Erdie Alice's car and he drove her to an industrial area in San Diego. They had sex in his car and he paid her $40. But then, He shot Marianne. Then he got his $40 back, drove her to an alley where he dumped her body and left. Because it was the 80s, no one really knew about DNA. But needless to say that when authorities discovered Marianne, they found a used condom nearby and took it into evidence. The DNA found on the condom would later positively identify Ertialis as the man who last had sex with Marianne before she was murdered. In April of 1989, Erdie Alice picked up his youngest victim yet, 18-year-old Tammy Irwin. They had hooked up previously, and it's unclear if it was for money or not, but on this occasion, he picked Tammy up and they drove to an empty lot. Tammy performed oral sex on Erdie Alice, and then they got out of the car. It was at this point that Erdie Alice pointed his gun at Tammy and shot her. He quick got into his car and was about ready to take off, when according to his own account, he saw that Tammy was still alive. She was actually still standing and holding her head. So while he was in the car, he pointed the gun at Tammy and shot her a second time. She immediately fell to the ground and then while she lay there on the ground and while he was still inside the car, he aimed the gun at her and fired a third time and then he drove off. After Tammy's murder, Ernie Ellis thought it might be a good idea to get rid of the gun since he had used it three times. So he took his 45 caliber apart and just randomly disposed of the pieces throughout the area where he drove. But later, much later, ballistics would tie the murders of Julie McGee, Mary Ann Wells and Tammy Irwin. They had all been shot with the same gun. After these three murders, there are no known incidents again while Erdialis was serving in the Marines. In 1991, Erdialis was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps and he relocated back to his hometown in Chicago. He moved in with his parents. And for whatever reason, Erdialis returned to California on a short visit in September of 1992. And it's then that Erdialis acted on his urges again. This time, his victim would be a woman named Jennifer S. Benson. Jennifer was 19 years old and she didn't have the best upbringing. She was working at a hospital in Palm Springs and Jennifer had recently had a string of incidents where she was late for her night shifts. Well, last time she arrived late to work, she was told that they were giving her one more chance. And if she was late again, she was getting the boot. Jennifer thought to herself, girl, get your act together. But you know, sometimes when you rely on public transportation, it's hard. Well, on September 27, 1992, Jennifer was running just a few seconds behind, and as she ran to the bus stop, the bus that she was trying to get on was pulling away. As she saw the bus leave, Jennifer realized that was it. Now she was going to be without a job. As she sat on the bus stop bench, she thought, just freaking great, Jennifer. But then she heard the sweetest voice. Hey, you need a ride? Jennifer looked up, and it was a meek-looking man. Jennifer thanked God for this angel, someone offering her a ride. The man was heading in the same direction as the hospital, so it was great. Jennifer jumped in the car and she chit-chatted with the man and he was kind of flirting with her, but she, you know, she just really wanted a ride. And before she knew it, she was at the hospital. But before she got out of the car, the man asked her for her phone number. And Jennifer was not really into this guy. She wasn't into him at all, but she thought, you know, he was nice, but not someone she cared to see again. So Jennifer jotted down a phone number. It was her phone number, almost. She changed one of the numbers so it would no longer be correct. She said goodbye to the guy and then she left. Jennifer got to work on time and she thanked her lucky stars. She worked her entire shift without any issues. And early the next morning, she exited the building. The sun was now rising. 19-year-old Jennifer beep-bopped along the street and as she walked, she felt a car kind of following her she noticed it was the same man who had given her a ride the day before. He offered to take her to breakfast, but Jennifer wasn't really feeling it. So she said, no, thanks. He then was like, all right, well, just come on. I'll take you home. Jennifer, wanting to be polite, as women often feel obliged to do, she relented and went in the car. Anyway, Jennifer had no idea that while she arrived alive earlier the night before because of this man, this might be the last time she was ever seen alive. Because the man in the car was Andrew Erdialis. Jennifer jumped into the car just as she had done hours earlier. And as soon as she jumped in, Erdialis asked her why she gave him the wrong number. Jennifer kind of froze. And it's at that point that Erdialis turned from Mr. Friendly to Mr. Murderer. He grabbed Jennifer's head, slammed it into the dashboard. He dropped the back of her seat, held a knife to her throat as he tied her hands behind her back. And he pointed a gun at her. He called her all types of terrible names as he sped off. At that point, Jennifer knew he was a madman. She was now laying almost completely flat in the passenger seat and she could see the light poles. And as she passed more and more light poles, she realized he was taking her to the desert. She thought, oh, my God, if he kills me out there, no one will ever find me. What Jennifer didn't know at the time was that Andrew Ardialis had already killed other women. She was going to be his next victim. And then the car came to a stop. Jennifer was in survival mode. She kept asking him where they were going. And she told him she would do whatever he wanted to please just not to hurt her. When they came to a stop in the desert, Alice forced her to perform oral sex on him. He then took off Jennifer's pants. He cut off her underwear and her bra. And he shoved her underwear into her mouth to keep her from screaming. And then he tied her bra around her mouth to keep her makeshift gag from coming out. Then he attempted to rape her. He yelled at her to tell him she loved him. Mind you, she's gagged. She's looking at him with terror in her eyes, but also thinking, dude, I will say whatever the hell you want me to say. But I actually have a gag in my mouth. Eventually, he got the hint. So he removed the gag and he yelled, quote, say it, end quote. Jennifer said it over and over again. I love you. I love you. I love you. All with tears in her eyes and barely being able to breathe. But this wasn't good enough for Alice. He wanted her to say it like she meant it. And on top of him not believing that she loved him, you know, which come on, man, you kidnapped her, forced her to give you oral sex at gunpoint. Then you bound her and gagged her. And oh, I'm sorry. You don't think she actually loves you? Well, on top of this. Our homeboy, Erdie Alice, couldn't get an erection, and this made him really angry. And at this point, he began to strangle Jennifer. He squeezed her neck harder and harder and harder. And Jennifer, she was a fighter, though. She was kicking and kicking and kicking, and she wouldn't stop. I mean, she was going in and out of consciousness, but every time she came to, she fought like hell. Jennifer was fighting for her life, gasping for air, all the while She was wishing that someone, anyone could see her final thoughts, know what actually happened to her in those last moments of her life. She remembered that the scariest part of this attack was realizing that the entire world was going about their day. Meanwhile, she was in the desert being murdered and no one would ever actually know what happened to her. And then everything went blank. Jennifer felt peaceful. She felt happy. She was like, well, I guess I'm dead. But this peaceful moment soon passed as she jostled back to life, realizing she was still in this nightmare. Then Erdie Alice's punk ass actually said that Jennifer fought so hard that his hands got tired and stiff. So he got off of Jennifer and just sat there for a second. Then he started to suck on her breast and her neck. And then when she was face to face with him, she realized he had blood all over his face. She didn't realize that he had been biting her the entire time. This was a savage attack. Erdie Alice then yanked Jennifer out of the car. He pointed a gun in Jennifer's face. And Jennifer, she was in hell and death was much better than the hell she was living in. She yelled at him, just do it, just do it. But he didn't. He forced her to perform oral sex again, but still not able to become erect. He knocked her over the head over and over again. He then yanked her by her hair and made her wait by the car. As he opened the trunk, she saw him remove a bag with different knives that were sticking out, and he moved the bag from the trunk to the back seat. And as he did this, Jennifer took this opportunity to run. Mind you, they were in a desolate desert. She was running through a field and she saw nothing. She was just running and running. She didn't know where she was going. And they were so far from civilization that in that moment, she knew this was it. She was going to die. But hell, if she died, she wanted people to know that she fought like hell. Erty Alice then realized that Jennifer was running and he took off after her. He caught her. He yanked her by her hair and then he dragged her through the field. Mind you, the field was filled with cacti and rocks and he shoved her in the trunk of his car. Now, initially, Jennifer refused to get in the trunk, but he managed to get her in there and then he took off. Jennifer would later testify that all she kept thinking while she was in that trunk was that he was going to take her somewhere, anywhere. He was going to kill her and then he was going to hack her up into little tiny pieces and she was terrified. Jennifer described being in the trunk and thinking, if only I could kill myself, she would much rather die at her own hands than at his. Jennifer kept thinking this man was going to take her further and further into the desert, and then he was going to kill her. But then she thought about something that her grandma taught her. Her grandma told her that if she was ever in a situation that seemed really difficult, all she had to do was pray. So Jennifer prayed and prayed and prayed. As she prayed, she tousled her hands that were tied behind her back, and then as she moved her hands about, <gasps> her ties came undone. Jennifer was like, oh my God, this is a miracle. For a few seconds, she thought, great, let me see if I can kill myself. So she took the rope that was just around her hands and she wrapped it around her neck and pulled and pulled and pulled. But then she lost her energy. She was like, oh, I'm just going to give up. And then panic set in and she was like, no, 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 Jennifer, you have to fight. She remembered watching something about a lever in the trunk to allow someone to get out. And she found this lever and she pulled it. And guess what? The trunk swung open. But Artie Alice saw it. Jennifer pulled the trunk down almost all the way. And the man stopped the car. And then he came out back with his gun. He slammed the trunk closed, got back in the car. And from inside the car, he was yelling and he was telling her to cut it out or he was going to shoot the back seat out. Jennifer, again, she was like, whatever. She opened the trunk, but she held it almost closed. And as Erdie Alice was about to take off, his tires got stuck in the sand. Jennifer knew this was her only opportunity to get the hell out of Dodge. So at that point, Jennifer swung the trunk open and she ran like hell. Erdie Alice saw what was happening. He grabbed something and he took off after her. Now, Jennifer recalled turning to see the man running after her with a machete and Jennifer was like, well, girl, you better run or you are going to be chop meat. And as she ran, she tried to get cars to stop, but none of them were stopping. But then a truck was coming in the distance. The truck with two occupants, two Marines to be exact. They saw Jennifer and they helped her. And by that point, Erdie Alice had turned around and he was back in his car. As Erdie Alice took off, he thought to himself, well, I guess this other guy or these other two guys are going to finish the job I started. No kidding, Erdie Alice would go on to tell this to the cops. He literally thought that he was about to kill this woman and that these other two guys picked her up and he was like, oh, well, I guess they'll kill her instead. The Good Samaritans, however, they put Jennifer in the truck and they chased after Erdie Alice's rental car. But Jennifer told them not to because he had a gun. The two Marines then took Jennifer to a nearby gas station where they called the police and they called Jennifer's mother. Jennifer was then taken to a hospital. Jennifer told the police her harrowing tale of survival and she had the ligature marks on her wrist. She had redness on her neck to prove that she wasn't lying. Heck, she even had two Marines saying they picked her up in the middle of the road while she was running from a man. But police then interviewed Jennifer's mother. And Jennifer's mother, well, she told police she thought Jennifer was lying. She told them that Jennifer always had a wild imagination and she wouldn't be surprised if Jennifer was just telling the story for attention. The police, they were shocked by all accounts. They were shocked that a man would kidnap a grown-ass woman in the middle of the day, take her to a desert, and do the things that Jennifer said he did. But they were also shocked that the victim's mom thought she was lying. The police half-heartedly looked for the man, but finding no one that fit the man Jennifer described, the case just went cold. 19-year-old Jennifer S. Benson thought she was living in a nightmare. She knew full well that she experienced a life and death situation. She knew she wasn't lying. She knew she didn't make this story up for attention. But the more she thought about it, the more she thought how crazy and bizarre it all sounded. It actually did sound fake, even to her. For years and years, Jennifer S. Benson struggled with her own demons. Was she lying? Was she truly a victim? Or was she just suffering from a mental break, some sort of mental health issue? According to an interview with the now disgraced CNN anchor Chris Cuomo of Inside Evil, Jennifer was in and out of mental health institutions for years. Jennifer, at this point, she was a shell of the person she was before this alleged attack. But then years later, five years to be exact, police called Jennifer S. Benson to ask her if she remembered the details of her attack from 1992. Next time on Military Murder. If you're anything like me and cannot wait until next week to listen to part two of this story, there are two ways that you can listen right now. First, you can join the fan club where you will immediately get access to part two completely ad-free. But you'll also get access to every single episode I have ever put out completely ad-free. And you get at least 16 bonus episodes, all for just $5. Check out patreon.com militarymurder military murder to join today. Now, the second way you can get access to part two of this episode is by joining my email list. But there's more. Not only do you get part two immediately, you also get two bonus episodes. So click the link in the show notes to join my email list today. True Crime Army, have a great holiday. Make sure that you're following me on social, on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on TikTok at Military Margot with a T at the end. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions, produced in collaboration with my Boot Camp and Higher Fan Club members. The music was created by Tie Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of this story next time. Shh, mom's working on her podcast.